Welcome to the USCCV First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Both political parties this year have made significant efforts to reach Catholic voters, drawing Catholics into what has been the most contentious campaign season in my lifetime, or at least that I can remember. Our guest today recently had an article published in America Magazine, which raised what I think is really a crucial question, maybe the most important question about Catholic engagement with politics, and that is this. Has Catholic engagement in political life served the church's witness? Bill McCormick is here with us today. He is a Jesuit scholastic, a political scientist, and contributing editor at America Magazine. His Twitter bio reads that he is Texan Dei Grazia, which warms my heart as a fellow Texan. Although I looked it up, Bill, and where my hometown is closer to Denver, Colorado, than it is to your hometown in, in Texas. So I'm actually closer to Cheyenne, Wyoming than, than Brownsville, Texas. But anyway, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. That's right, because Brownsville's right on the border, right? It is indeed. From Mexico, yeah. It's a big state, a lot of grace between all those wide-ranging borders. Yeah. <laughs> You say, you know, to get to the heart of the matter, you say that in, in your article in America, uh, that no matter what happens in November, the American church will almost certainly continue to lose. Can you say what you mean? What do you mean by that? Thank you. I think the point of my article, and I stated it, of course, as provocatively as possible, <laughs> is, is that I think that a lot of American Catholics are very focused on whether their preferred candidate will win uh, this November, um, and not maybe not as worried about whether the church will quote unquote win. And my concern particularly is as Christians engage in intramural debates about politics, uh, the United States is becoming more and more secular. Um, and the main task of the Christian church is precisely bringing people to Christ. So how can we do that better? Mm -hmm. And again, what I, what I really want to ask us is what is our main goal here? Is our main goal making sure that our preferred political candidate or candidates win uh, or fulfilling the essential task of the church? I don't think those are necessarily contradictory uh, goals, uh, but I do think that there's a bit of daylight between them right now for most Christians. And Catholic. Mm -hmm. So Bill, can you just clarify, because I think what has helped me, and this is, this is not politics advocacy, this is, this is my husband's area, and this is not something I naturally, you know, my husband's a lobbyist, right? But I, I tend to think, you know, I don't know, I'm very skeptical, very critical, very, um, Oh, I don't know what the word is. I'm trying to be positive here, but it's hard. <laughs> it's We're talking hard. about politics. It's uplifting. It, it, right. So <laughs> political life, like we're talking about, there's a difference between advocacy, policy, and political life. Political life, we're really talking about political parties. Like I think an important thing to do is to define our terms here. And so what we're really talking about in this discussion is it sounds like what you're saying is there are, there are the, 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 the teachings and witness of the church to the issues that matter and where the church 
what the church has to offer and how we as Catholics should evangelize on those issues. And that that is being lost when we focus on political life, one party versus another, particularly in our country. Is that what you're saying? I think that's really well said. I think you're right to say that Christians occupy a range of vocations with respect to political life. And most of us are voters. Uh, some of us are also engaged uh, in advocacy and research. And there are very few of us uh, who are hold elected office or some kind of appointed office. And so the, these questions will bear on those different sorts of vocations differently, uh, distinctly. But I think you're right to say that part of the problem uh, becomes when the political, those kinds of political activities become more important uh, than our mission, our, our vocation as Christians. Absolutely. So you mentioned in this article that, that, you know, Catholics have been involved in America's political life, you know, for decades. I mean, Catholics have been very involved in, and I guess to be clear, in party politics. Catholics have been involved in party politics in different ways. Do you think that that's been good for evangelization? I, I'm, I'm going to assume that's no, but so then why not? Like in what ways, where, where do you think Catholics have come up maybe a little short or where do you think we could do better um, in terms of our, how, how the way that we engage political life can also bear witness to the gospel? Those are great questions. The history of Catholic involvement in U.S. politics is really fascinating, and I think that it's helpful for U.S. Catholics to have a some sense that for much of American history, Catholics were not full citizens. Um, and it's really only been, and of course people disagree on the exact dates, but it's certainly only been after World War II uh, that Catholics have been really assimilated and integrated into political life. And for much of U.S. history, Catholics, uh, and that includes at the very highest levels, bishops uh, and cardinal bishops, have had to kind of prove their, their American bona fides, that we are indeed full Americans. Um, and so in the past 50, 60 years with, the, for instance, the presidency of John F. Kennedy um, or the rise in Catholic membership in the U.S. Congress, uh, Catholics have become engaged in U.S. politics in a way that they never have been. And as is well known, a defining issue of that uh, engagement has been around abortion. So certainly with 1973, the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade brought Catholics into politics, national politics, in a way that they never had before. And certainly uh, in the 80s, in the 1980s, with abortion becoming a central issue of U.S. politics. But there are no question, so there's no question that U.S. Catholic involvement in, in U.S. politics has been, is a relatively new thing. Um, and it's also striking that at the same time as U.S. Catholics have become more directly involved in U.S. politics, uh, we've also seen uh, the rise of secularism in the United States. And that certainly has not, uh, certainly has not uh, exempted or accepted Catholics. You know, and I don't claim to have all the answers here, uh, but what I, more than anything, I would like to provoke Catholics to ask whether, in fact, their, their engagement with politics has been a good thing for evangelization. And if you look at those data around secularism, around church membership, the answer is, is pretty clear that that political involvement has not been good uh, <laughs> for it. 
Um, and I suspect uh, that part of what is going on is just what we said earlier is a kind of a kind of amnesia or a kind of failure to see that our our membership in the Catholic Church is just as important um, as our membership in U.S. politics. And clearly, clearly part of this is the way in which the U.S. Catholic Church, it's, it's such a fascinating entity because no other major group of uh, American of Americans, no major group of uh, religious group that is, is as split down the middle as uh, the Catholic Church is. And there are obviously a significant number of Catholics who identify as Republicans and who identify as uh, Democrats. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for all of the talk of the Catholic vote, and of course that's a huge can of worms that would take another six or seven podcasts to unpack, uh, it's often hard to distinguish uh, the Catholic voter from the general American voter. Um, and I, I think that might be part of the puzzle we're looking at here. Why has um, rising uh, Catholic engagement in U.S. politics not uh, been good for evangelization? It might be because Catholics have, in some key ways, failed to reflect the distinctiveness of Catholicism in their politics. It's interesting, Bill. You brought up um, you brought up abortion, and and that's I'm in the pro life secretariat, and you know I would say one of the, our challenges has been that um, abortion is of course a divisive issue, as you mentioned, rightly pointed out, and um, so we have a culture wounded by abortion in many ways, not just people who've had abortions themselves lost a child to abortion and are incredibly wounded by that. But abortion has destroyed our culture in so many other ways. And so it's sad that sometimes the conversation revolves around it as an issue of voting or one party's opinion on a position on it versus another, as opposed to what are we doing to evangelize and heal a culture and people who are wounded by it. And so that's, you know, you, it's just such a great point that this is, it's, if more Catholics were involved in abortion as an evangelist, efforts to evangelize and heal the culture uh, from the damage of abortion, that, that I, I would see that as being as more helpful than focused on it as an quote unquote issue. Not to say that that's not important as well, but the, the two tend to be confused. And I think it's, it's helpful to clarify and just to keep those things in perspective and keep those things in mind. I agree completely. And of course, this is part of the force of uh, Pope John Paul II's emphasis on culture, a culture of life, um, that beyond any of the particular legal or policy efforts we make, we need to ensure, and of course, being horribly reductive of a great body of thought, uh, but we need to fight uh, and push for every day for a culture that is protective of life and protective of all the goods of life. And part of what you're, you're saying that's so helpful, I think, is that I, and you would need much better data than I have, is I, I do wonder how often Catholics in, this, in the country uh, approach issues, these quote-unquote hot-button issues, from the perspective uh, just as Catholics and just as Christians? And do they have spaces uh, where they can reflect upon these issues and act upon them um, as more than, as you said, more than just political issues or political footballs, 
but actually matters that get to the heart of their faith. Um, and I think that, you know, imagining the Catholic Church as this very rich society where we're able, and community, where we're able to be together and nurture and help one another uh, in our faith, I, that could be a, a place of growth for us. Yeah, I'm interested in your comment about the the rise of secularism appearing to kind of uh, coincide with with Catholic involvement in politics, and I, I don't. As I, I seem to recall, you're not saying that one caused the other necessarily, but it is interesting that that's ha that those things have happened side by side in a way. I mean, it kind of gets at, at something that I've noticed just anecdotally. I don't know if there are any if there's data to back up what I've noticed, but it seems to me that that politics and kind of what I would call political hobbyism or making, you know, following politics on Twitter and stuff like that, just sort of as a hobby, um, has become a way that people, that like their primary way of understanding their identity uh, for a lot of people, e even Christians, I've noticed this with, with, with people that I know where it almost, it's almost starting to seem like for some people I know where they maybe got into they got interested in political issues for good reasons, and yet now it's the political stuff more than their the their the faith, which may have served as their initial motivation for getting involved in the issue. Um, now it's the it's the issue itself that kind of consumes their attention. Uh, I even there I was looking at um, a conversation or kind of looking in on a conversation on Facebook among some people about why people leave the church and one person was suggesting, well, they're a lot of young people are interested in these, in various justice issues um, and they don't see the church as being on the right side of that. But I also wonder to what extent sometimes being involved in some particular issue is not so much about the issue even itself as much as it's about just being part of the group that is, that is um, pushing for whatever it is. It can go different ways, and so anyway, I'm just I'm I'm just interested. Like, do you do you think that that's something that's happening? That people are identifying primarily with political, with secular political tribes, so to speak, rather than the church, or what, rather than a faith group. And so, you know, why do you think that's happening? Well, there's no question that people today are very hungry for community, uh, and they are looking for a sense of belonging. There's also no question that there seem to be fewer obvious sources for that kind of experience of belonging. And in fact, people are hungry for belonging precisely because they don't feel it. Uh, and there's a wonderful book uh, by Alan Jacobs called How to Think. It's a wonderful book, but one of his main points about it is that, that what can seem so antisocial and so conflictual and so divisive about our culture is actually deeply uh, social <laughs> and deeply communal, that we really want to belong uh, to groups and communities and to feel that we are finally with people who understand us and take seriously our needs and our vision of the world. 
And that's not to trivialize any of the issues uh, that often frame right. the, the activities of these groups. The issues of, of justice, especially around, for instance, race, they join people together in a way that so little else seems able to do mm -hmm. uh, in our time. So I think there is a real crisis of community. And that's something that, that sociologists, you know, bowling alone, for instance, the work of uh, Putnam or Bella or Robert Nisbet have been worried about with American society since the 50s. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the story, as you said, is uh, a rise in the nuns and a rise in people who aren't affiliated with any religious group. And I, they look at, uh, for instance, the Catholic Church or Christian churches in general, uh, not under the assumption that, of course, I should be religious, of course, I should belong to a church, but much more ambivalently, what do you have to offer me that I can't get anywhere else? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this is, to some extent, I'm just recapitulating the thesis of Charles Taylor's uh, massive book, A Secular Age. But I, I think that, you know, if, if there's no direct causation uh, between Catholic political engagement and secularism, and as you said, I am not saying there is, there is nonetheless a certain irony uh, that Catholics have become more engaged in politics uh, precisely at the same time that so many Americans are no longer in touch with the Catholic tradition or the Christian traditions and don't understand uh, the teaching that's being addressed to them, don't understand the context whence it comes, and they're likely to worry uh, that Christians, when engaging in politics, are just another self-interested group looking for their self-aggrandizement, looking for power, um, looking to advance their interests. Um, and I, so I was very struck, uh, been very struck in this conversation and, and in others, that when, when nuns and other kinds of uh, non-Christians and non-believers are watching Christians engage in politics, that might be their primary experience of Christians, of Christianity, of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think that might, well, first of all, that's sobering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, <laughs> oh, no. But well, I, I, I don't think, you know, I think that might want to impact, um, might impact how we do politics. And I, you know, there's a lot of slippery terminology here around what is secularism and what are nuns and, and one thing I want to make sure is that, you know, I think that there are many, many people out there who are, quote, spiritual, but not religious, uh, who are very open uh, to religious values, if you will. And, um, but they don't have an obvious home. They don't have an obvious place to go where they can be a member uh, with groups who turn themselves towards religion uh, and who don't share with one another and cultivate with one another. Uh, so it's quite possible that a lot of the quote-unquote secular movements going on in the U.S. today are actually deeply, deeply religious. Mm -hmm. uh, we have these catch-all categories like secular uh, that, that are not unhelpful, of course. So, Bill, I'm interested in what you think about, I mean, so the par parish life, do you have thoughts or, on can engaged, healthy, dynamic Catholic parishes, can they fill that gap that people um, are, are feeling for community? And if there is a, what is the role of, what is the intersection of politics and parish life? Because that gets into, um, priests don't 
want to be uh, politicians, right? But we have a responsibility as Catholics to, uh, you know, work to be faithful citizens, right? It's the name of the, the document that the USCCB uh, puts out every four years. And so what are your thoughts on, on the role of the parish in, in this engagement with political life? Well, I think the parish is essential to this conversation because the parish is the place where all sorts of different kinds of people can come together and find community in a very direct, concrete way, face to face. Uh, there are so few places like that in U.S. society where people with seemingly very little in common are brought together and shown and oriented toward a common belief. So in my more um, Pollyanna phases, I would like to think that the parish could be the source of a great American civic revival. Um, again, because as we know, we're so many Americans don't talk to each other. We kind of live in our own bubbles and we don't know many people who think differently or from it, or if we know them, we know them as the people over there to whom we don't, uh, with whom we don't engage. So I, I think you're right. I think it's absolutely crucial for parishes to be a part of this conversation. And of course, the pandemic has reminded us how much we miss, how important parishes are and how much we miss and love that life. Uh, so I, I hope, if nothing else, the, the pandemic is a, an encouragement to all of us to recommit to our parishes. But I think you're right. It's it's not as though we want uh, our priests or our, our lay people or whomever uh, to become political activists necessarily. Uh, we don't want them uh, engaged in partisan party politics. But at the same time, it seems like there's so much fruitful work to be done, conversation to be had, and teaching and learning about what is the rich Catholic and Christian tradition of politics and society. What do we owe to one another as children of the one crucified creator. Uh, what do we owe to each other? And not moving so quickly to, and therefore that's why I will support this candidate whom I've always wanted to support. And by the way, belongs to the political party that my family has voted for, for four generations. Mm -hmm. You know, stopping that uh, sort of ideological loop um, and challenging people, I think, to step back. And I, what's so powerful about Cath the Catholic church and the parish is it's not just a place where you're taught uh, data points propositionally, but you also experience uh, creation in its full glory with uh, other people uh, and meeting other people and coming to know their story and coming to learn that the world is so much bigger uh, than you are. And that's not always, those aren't always arguments we can put into syllogistic forms, uh, but we can find them in the face of others. Um, so I didn't answer your question very well, but I think no, the parish- No, you did, it's great. The parish is, is absolutely key. Um, there are people who know so much more than I do about the parish life, but you know, I, I hope and I do believe it's true that the, the oft-claimed death of the parish, I mean, this just can't. It's too crucial to our lives. And of course there needs to be reform, but it is, it is crucial to this project. I have to admit that I, and maybe, maybe I tend to be one of the more pessimistic people in my, of my colleagues. So I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, which was the home of the church growth movement. And the idea behind the church, church growth was 
to simplify it, uh, or say a little bit simplistically, it actually it came out of out of the idea of doing world mission or mission in other countries. Uh, and the idea was that generally people want to be with will go want to be with people that look and act like them and that think like them. Like and that and so it's easier to grow a church if it's homogenous, basically. And so that was the idea, the, the, the thinking behind some people in the School of World Mission at, at Fuller was, was promoting this idea of like, well, you can grow churches quickly in different places if you, if you, if they, if, if the church tries to reach a particular demographic. And I have to say, like, on the one hand, I think obviously there are ecclesiological problems with that, um, <laughs> that I think are pretty obvious. Um, from especially from a Catholic and like a bigger picture of what the church is supposed to be than simply just trying to goose the numbers. But I do have to say one of the things that disturbs me sometimes in just in what I've seen in my own life is that generally, you know, generally when people talk about what we need for church renewal, it often what they say they need, what we need often just reflects their concerns. So if you tend to be um, more social justice oriented, you say we need to have more social justice type work in our parishes. If you tend to be a traditional liturgy person, you say, well, what we really need to fix our churches is to have more traditional liturgy. Whatever personal preferences tend to be, we say, well, if, if we made more parishes like the kind of parish that would attract me, it will attract everyone. <laughs> That's kind of what people say, right? But the thing that I've noticed is that it does seem true to me that parishes or even even outside the Catholic world, just churches, evangelical churches, um, mainline Protestant, when they do tend, seem to have a strong identity as either the place where the liturgy is really beautiful or the place that gets that's really involved in community organizing or the place that's known as the multi-ethnic place or whatever, like those do seem to be the ones that are the most dynamic and active and have lots of people. Whereas the ones that, that tend to be more like, you know, try like all things to all people that try to be that end up not like the attendance just, this is just my own. I may be totally wrong on this, but often the attendance seems lower at those parishes. And I don't know. I just, it's something that I, I think about like, and I, I don't know, I don't have a, I don't know if I have a question buried in here. It's just, it's, but in terms of renewing parish life, I wonder if you, do, have, do you see that same kind of phenomenon? Do you think that that necessarily, are there still ways to overcome that human tendency to want to be with people that are like us? That we, we kind of have a tribal type tendency in general, or we want to be with other people who share our interests. How does that affect this? you know, seeing the parish as a place for people to encounter others who are not necessarily like them or to encounter the full, I mean, the church is full of everyone, you know, and so how do you, how do we not just go to the parish that serves my own personal preferences? Sorry, that's kind of a big, we've really kind of strayed away from political stuff. But. Not at all. I mean, one of the, one of the most beautiful things about thinking about church life you know, is this incredible tension between the universal and particular. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more universal <laughs> than Christ and Christ's lordship of the universe. 
and nothing mm -hmm. more particular than how each of us sort of bumble our way toward and through discipleship. So it's oh, just, it, well you know, said. It's, it's yeah. just endlessly, well said. endlessly moving. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, the source of all sorts of obstacles and confusion. <laughs> uh, I, I completely agree that often when we speak about parish renewal, as you said, we often sort of uh, smuggle the conclusions in with the premise. And so it, we lead to, that leads us to just sort of uh, confirm what we already thought. Um, and I think every parish is different. And you're right, there are a lot of parishes with a really beautiful identity um, that's actually able to incorporate all kinds of different Catholics. And that's part of the story of parishes, of course, is their identity as social bodies. They're obviously canonical subjects as well. Uh, but as social bodies, uh, their identity, their, their memory, their activity is so much richer than any one Catholic uh, could ever capture. And I suppose, too, you know, every parish has a relationship with, its, with the city, the state, the world, you know, in which it finds itself. And there are there are parishes out there that might in some ways be quite uh, homogenous in, in, by different socioeconomic metrics, but are quite engaged uh, in, in their surroundings and in the world around them. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, it's, I mean, I, I guess every parish is so deeply situated, but I, I suppose the beginning to all this is for a parish to, to look at itself and ask, what are our gifts and how is God calling us to use them? Because, um, as you said, the challenge is very can be very ideological um, that we that we want to impose um, our preferences upon the community when it should be more organic. Um, and again, what does God want us to do? I'm a, I'm a mm -hmm. Jesuit, so I have to mention discernment at some point in this, <laughs> this conversation. So. Well, that's the closing question I want to ask you later in a little bit. <laughs> about, um, I think that we'll that kind of tee you up for a Jesuit kind of answer. So great. <laughs> Ignatian um, answer, I should say. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to bring things back a little bit though, to the original talk topic with politics, I, I wanted to ask you a, a question that kind of, that I think it hit me a little bit personally, actually, you know, you mentioned that this tendency towards apocalyptic thinking that goes along with the partisanship where, and, and you see this, this sense of impending dread about the results of November that if, if my guy doesn't win, all is lost, you know, that, I mean, I just see this, this kind of rhetoric all over the place. Um, and, and I couldn't help but think about some of our own concerns within the religious liberty office. Um, you know, on the one hand, religious liberty seems to win most of the time at the Supreme Court. Um, like it always seems to win when it gets to that level. And yet most religious liberty advocates s seem to feel like there's this catastrophe that's just right around the corner, you know? And, and so, and that's why I say it hit personally, because I'll admit that I often feel that way, can feel that way too. Why do you think that, why do you think there is this feeling that like, that, that many people, especially involved in political type church and politics kind of work feel like things are just are going down the tubes or or if and if they're not we're just sort of treading water for the time being but things are just any moment now they're going to take a turn for the worse <laughs> what do you think's going on there i'm grateful for this question because it's a really good one uh and i have a couple of thoughts um 
Uh, I think first, you know, there's been a strategy um, amongst many Christians to pursue uh, Christian political goals legally and constitutionally through the courts. There's been some introspection about the success of pursuing um, Christian political goals, uh, primarily legally or constitutionally. And of course, for instance, this June uh, with the Bostock uh, decision, that was written by Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court Justice. There, I think there's this fear uh, that what can be won legally or through the courts can be lost uh, just as easily. That's, that's a complica complex set of questions, but I, I do think many Christians are wondering uh, what are the best strategies, uh, politically speaking? Are they more legal? Are they more constitutional? Or are they, should they be more focused on the culture, uh, as Mary was saying earlier? I also think, and this is the part that I find more interesting, uh, there's a great article written a couple of months ago by Yuval Levin at the Dispatch, and the title was Don't Panic, Just Worry. <laughs> Don't Panic, Just Worry. Uh, and it was a, a kind of critique of our tendency in U.S. politics to approach every theme, uh, every policy <laughs> issue apocalyptically. Mm -hmm. uh, that we have to panic, and there's no time for reflection, and there's no time for discussion and negotiation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of the apocalyptic thinking in, in U.S. Christian circles is, I mean, for lack of a better term, it, it's just how we've been enculturated into U.S. politics. And this kind of apocalyptic thinking that says we have to pass this bill, we have to get this policy through, we have to elect this person, or... Uh, something very, very bad will happen. It's a bit ironic because apocalyptic thinking, you know, that name apocalypse doesn't come from nowhere. <laughs> There's a long-standing Christian tradition uh, that wants to find what is the meaning of everything going on in history. Mm -hmm. um, and Bernard McGinn, uh, leading Catholic theologian at the University of Chicago, uh, has a lot of great writings on apocalypticism. Uh, but, you know, McGinn sees apocalypticism as a, as a really fascinating mix of pessimism and hope. Uh, pessimism about the present, uh, but hope for the future. And I think that when we, in U.S. politics, when we get into uh, apocalyptic modes of thinking, we tend to oscillate quite violently between pessimism and, and hope, or I might just say optimism rather than hope. Uh, that we're quite pessimistic about the current situation, but if we can only overcome it, then everything will be fine. Well, rinse and repeat, right? The cycle immediately reproduces itself, and then the latest uh, political battle becomes the object of great or the source of great uh, pessimism. Mm -hmm. so I, I have to think that as Christians, we have to look at this kind of apocalypticism a little critically. Uh, we shouldn't be optimistic about some grand political dispensation that we're going to build by our own efforts. We have to be hopeful about the second coming of Christ and the kingdom, the parousia, uh, that it turns out we are not the authors of. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so not only should we, I think, push against that kind of cheap optimism to look for hope, but we should also be measured in our pessimism. I mean, there's plenty of, there are plenty of things to be quite sad about. Um, in U.S. politics and society, and I don't want to deny that. I think if we take maybe a slightly more Augustinian approach uh, to some of them and say, 
you know, things have been bad now. Things are bad and things have been bad before. And uh, we are going to do what we can to sojourn in this very strange uh, cyclum. <laughs> but, you know, we are not going to imagine that our political efforts are going to be what save us. Mm-hmm. Um, and this and- is all pretty basic Christian doctrine. You didn't need a political scientist to show it. You, but there, it is true. It is true uh, that apocalypticism is this very strange cycle, a seemingly endless cycle of pessimism and optimism. And the goalposts are always moving. And I don't want to dismiss the very real uh, threats to religious liberty that you know continue to grow. And and but perhaps some of it, the apocalyptic thinking could be perpetrated uh, or perpetuated. I, I would I should say by by money, by fundraising, by political uh, fundraisers, people who need to develop and um, encourage that kind of thinking to make money for particular candidates or for, for particular issues. Uh, not just political, but fundraising is, is incredibly difficult right now. A lot of people are tightening their belts. Uh, and so that perhaps could contribute to it as well. I do think this is where that fundamental question of like how does our engagement in politics serve the mission of the church and taking a step back um i think why i thought the article that you wrote really struck me because it is because it does get it like so like to kind of game it out a little bit and say like well let's just assume that everything that a lot of catholics would want to happen it goes the opposite way in our nation's political life um, what does that mean for the church? Well, I mean, the church has been, has borne witness and, and worked in all, as, as a Jesuit, you know, um, I mean, you, y'all, your order has worked in all sorts of situations. Uh, obviously, we, we want to work towards the common good. I mean, that's why we're involved in politics, we want to build the common good. But the church's fundamental mission of bearing witness to Christ uh, doesn't it can't really be impeded by by anything like that right? I mean we that's I think that that's maybe the key is to say well maybe our mode of witness changes depending on the situation we're in but nothing is to stop us from we're never in some place where we're prevented from from preaching the gospel absolutely there is hope beyond politics um, and and if Christians engage in politics and talk about politics in a way that makes that clear. I mean, I honestly think we could turn the temperature down on a great number of our political controversies um, in our time if we could do that. And it goes back to to something that we were talking about earlier uh, about, Aaron, you were talking about the number of people who seem so engaged in politics as though it were all that there is. And of course, Pope Benedict was very strong on this point, that politics is not metaphysics. Politics is not salvation. Um, And it seems to be one of the prevailing uh, pathologies of our time that for a lot of people, politics is their source, their one source for hope, their one source for goodness, their one source for salvation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I definitely don't want Christians to abandon politics or social life or public life, uh, but we somehow we have to do so in a way that shows our commitment to something greater 
uh, which, which actually makes politics more possible, more human. How about we close with something practical? And this is where I think that I'm appealing to your Ignatian spirituality. And that's thinking about what sorts of everyday practices um, can help Christians and local churches. So it's not, because it's not just individuals, we're talking about body, like um, social bodies too, local churches grow into the kinds of people who engage in politics with this kind of missionary spirit? What sorts of habits do we need to develop to, to be able to practice good discernment? Uh, because, you know, you can't just kind of turn it on one day. I mean, these take, you know, habits developed from practices. What sorts of practices um, do you think, would you encourage us to engage in? Well, I think I have two basic uh, two seemingly contradictory pieces of advice on this front. Uh, the first is to keep taking action uh, after this November. Uh, a lot of people in the United States uh, are very focused on politics in and around elections and then kind of turn that off again and try to ignore it until they have to. Um, for all the polarization that there is in this country, there's also a tremendous amount of apathy and disillusionment. Absolutely. Uh, right. <laughs> Precisely because of the polarization and the, the pathologies of our politics. So I really would encourage uh, Christians of all kinds to stay engaged after this November. And I would, we'll see what happens with the pandemic, but I would particularly love for them to do that in the context of their parish and really reconnect with their neighbors and, and their uh, yeah, the people they go to mass with every day or every Sunday. The second thing though is so besides keep acting after November, also stop acting and pray. Uh, there's a wonderful tweet from Bishop Flores of Brownsville. Uh, he tweeted this in early September. Spend more time reading the gospel than you do watching cable news shows or <laughs> arguing politics on Twitter. <laughs> You know, I felt like he'd gone into my internet uh, search history and <laughs> put it on Twitter. No, it's, it's a bracing message. Um, if we are Christians and we want to commit to public witness to Christ, how do we do that? Well, we might want to spend a little time with the gospel. Uh, and in this case, as he said, spend more time with the gospel than you do on Twitter. Uh, and I think that's really something very simple and very powerful if we really believe uh, that we access the word of God through scripture, then that's a foundation for all of our, our social life, our political life, our faith life. Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of uh, spiritual renewal that the church uh, and society really need in the, in the U.S. today. Yeah, it's more like don't, don't act, instead of don't act, don't act out. <laughs> right there's a well lot of said. people I mean, social media is filled with it can be just such a downward spiral so quickly and i think if more people took your advice to read the gospels before they went on social media and started posting left and right it, it would potentially be a more peaceful productive place possibly well i like the advice too because it's so it's just also simple uh, I think is helpful. I think sometimes it's, you know, easy to think that we, we need to radically change some things and we probably do, but that's something anybody can do is, is to sit and spend more time with the gospels. So I really, I really appreciate that. Bill, I, this, I feel like I could talk to you all afternoon. This has been a, I'm really glad that we had this chance to meet 
Um, I've really liked the, what you've been writing in America Magazine and just appreciate your witness. Uh, and so thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks uh, to both of you for your wonderful ministry to the USCCB. Very grateful for that. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm-hmm.